Hey, what's up everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczek. This is our second week of teaching panels on scholarship and teaching and life and work and our careers and our well-being and everything about ourselves during the pandemic as we start what has already been an eventful, to put it politely, fall semester. This week, I speak with Alicia Kirchhoff, Jane Palmer, friend of the show, Sarah Daly, and Dustin Gann about their experiences with everything that's been going on. Uh, This is episode 49, big week next week, episode 49 this week, long pause of On Tenure Tracks. So this is our second um, teaching and scholarship in the pandemic panel um, for On Tenure Tracks or this special project that I still don't really have a name for yet on On Tenure Tracks. Um, I'm Dr. Andy Wilczek. Um, I'm going to go around and have everybody introduce themselves um, and I'm just going to go clockwise around my screen. So uh, Sarah Daly. Thanks. So happy anniversary to you. <laughs> What a way to cap off your your right. year. Yeah. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm a uh, now fifth year professor, assistant professor at St. Vincent College in Richmond, Pennsylvania, um, and I'm a criminologist and I study uh, math students and insults. I would say I would say awesome is like my go-to generic reaction to stuff, but I. That's very interesting. And Sarah is a is a fan favorite of the show. Uh, people really wanted to hear about incels. Um, it, it must be that, like, I say dirty words. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, yeah, also when people are, like, when somebody accidentally slips and says, like, hell or something, and then are like, oh, no, like, can we swear on the podcast? I say, go listen to Sarah's episode. <laughs> I don't care. I do not care <laughs> really what you say. <laughs> I, I was really proud that, like, it got, like, an explicit content warning. I feel like I'm just a very good company on Spotify. Like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> yep. But, uh, no, thanks for having me. This is exciting. <laughs> Thank you for coming back. Um, Alicia? Uh, I'm Alicia Kirchhoff. I'm a PhD candidate at Indiana University in the Department of Sociology. I, um, I study lawyers, so... I can mean a lot of different things, but I studied civil law attorneys, um, notaries in the civil law context, and my, I also study um, immigrant lawyers and law students in the U.S., so intersecting identities of race, ethnicity, and gender, and immigrant status in the legal profession. So. And your, your work is focusing on, on Russia, right? So, uh, this might be the topic that I discuss. I was unable to go to Russia this year to do my interviews, and so I've had to pivot away from my original dissertation topic. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, because I wasn't able to complete my data collection. Mm-hmm. And so, my side project is now my dissertation project. <laughs> my uh, dissertation project is now doing the best I can with what I have. Yeah. And TBD on the rest of it. So. Yep. Sometimes that side hustle becomes like your main gig. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. But yeah, but it, it, I mean, I do have past training as a Russian, so I'm uh, also a scholar of modern Russia. So super cool, uh, Dustin. Uh, I'm a historian. Uh, I teach uh, history and honors classics uh, at Midland University in Fremont, Nebraska, and my research focuses on uh, kind of urban communities in the Midwest that we're doing a lot with. Uh, centennial celebrations about uh, post-World War II in the 1960s. Um, so I'm closer than Russia uh, to many of my sources, but that doesn't mean that they're easier to access uh, in this period. And finally, uh, Jane. 
Hi everyone, I'm Jane Palmer. Um, I'm faculty at American University in the School of Public Affairs. I'm in the Department of Justice Law and Criminology, but um, I, I align more closely with my previous profession, which is in social work. I have an MSW. Um, and I was a social worker with um, survivors and perpetrators of sexual violence and domestic violence, and I became I came to get my PhD to become a faculty member to look at law and policy issues in those areas. I actually do a civil legal project, so we should talk um, with such, uh, civil legal attorneys for sexual assault survivors. And then um, my side project when I was a doctoral student became my dissertation. And now since then, I've been doing a biennial victimization survey on my campus since 2011. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to be here. Wow. So yeah, like one of the best parts about this project is making connections happen, and like creating community is something that I didn't think was gonna like it wasn't part of the plan when we started this, uh, but um, very cool. So um, like I, I told you all a couple minutes ago, the, the purpose of this um, is to just talk about how we're doing, uh, how the last few months have been for us. Uh, how are we feeling coming into the the beginning of a new semester. Um, I just started yesterday. We're recording this at the end of August. So um, I'm one day in. I've had uh, multiple panic attacks <laughs> already. Uh, looking forward to the next few months of just fun mental health days. Uh, how's everybody else doing? So we start on Thursday, uh, but I feel as though there hasn't been any sort of summer. Our faculty went through an 11-week uh, summer PD course, and I actually got to fill the role as TA. Uh, I had previously taught a lot of online classes. I've been at ASU uh, in Tempe before Midland. Uh, so people kind of came to me as an expert in, in online pedagogy and uh, tried to, to pick my brain. But that resulted in 11 weeks of me grading and helping and uh, triaging to make it not feel like a summer at all. Yeah, yeah. I can relate to that. We, I'm the Preparing Future Faculty Fellow at IU, which is a position for an advanced graduate student to help train first-year instructors. And teaching is something I care a lot about. Um, I enjoy it, but I also felt like I didn't get much of a summer in that regard either because in May already we were trying to plan out as a campus what was happening and then figuring out what was happening at the departmental level and the faculty advisor for the program and I put together uh, a webinar uh, for our graduate students, our instructors, and uh, a number of resources for faculty. So I realized quickly that having never taught online, I was going to have to support first-time instructors who were also teaching online for the first time, and so I took a lot, <laughs> took a lot of courses, probably not online, the one that Dustin um, helped present and, and, and assemble, and so just a lot of figuring out what the heck I was going to do before um, I was going to have to do it, so the summer I was doing, but not doing my interviews in Russia, instead I was taking <laughs> online courses about teaching online, so. <laughs> uh, Sarah, how are you doing? I think as well as everyone else is doing. <laughs> um, I think in like a lot of ways, I've been like kind of self-flagellating, you know what I mean? Like I, I don't have children. I understand how to use technology. I've taught before, so like I have to help others and I have to do these different things and, you know, provide people with like these school tools that I completely forgot that like academics are very type A, so they're like, I want to learn how to use all these tools. Now can you help me? log onto my computer. <laughs> but, like, I, I know that I'm really lucky in a lot of senses that, like, I have the time and the energy and the resources to kind of do this work. So I'm like, I deserve this. I should be working as hard as I can or working for 13 hours a day because I can't complain because I still have a job, you know. And so I, I think that finding that balance where it was bad enough, I'm like, we feel guilty when we come to work. Um, and this has just been like a whole new level of, of hell with guilt when I watch Netflix. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's Netflix been... time. <laughs> you need it. Yeah, you, need it. You're you do. Downtime. You do cling to that Netflix time. I think it's been like bimodal, like people's responses to this. It's either been like uh, 
uh, an onset of like a new level of workaholism and just like 13 hour days like you said uh, I, I have no right to feel guilty um, and that kind of talk and then you're going to burn out or <laughs> uh, totally unable to do work uh, because of all kinds of life circumstances and or um, mental health concerns and then still feeling burned out um, because <laughs> of all of those other crises. I mean, that's where that's been my imaginary summer, right? And that's going to be my my fall semester too. So, yeah, I mean, it's really hard. And I started yesterday too. It is hard to start a new semester burnt out instead of refreshed. You know? Yeah. Um, I really. I mean, I became an academic after being a social worker because I wanted summers. Like I, I didn't. I didn't feel like I had the stamina. This sounds like totally horrible, but I didn't have the stamina as I got older to like mm-hmm. not have summers. I don't know. Uh, so um, I have a three-year-old, um, and I have been navigating this in in the mental health aspect of trying to make the best of it and really trying to, um, despite all the like really great reasons to be super depressed, and I've had my own fluctuations with that. Um, I've been trying to really value the extra time with my three-year-old instead of being resentful about mm-hmm. it um, and let some of the other academic things that I should be doing go. I mean, I think I do have a luxury. I think, we, I think Sarah, we all have, like, maybe a thing that we feel like makes us luckier than someone else, and I think a luxury that I have is I'm in a non-tenure track teaching position. Um, <clears throat> I am research active. So I do shoot myself in the foot in that way. Um, but um, I feel like I could just, you know, every morning my son and I would go explore the woods near our house that we had never been in. Um, and I really just wanted to, like, enjoy that time with him. Um, my partner's um, job was very COVID-related, so especially during those four months, we um, I was the primary. And then in early July, he was able to go back to daycare, and then my summer just, like, opened up, and it was amazing. It's like a pod situation, five families from uh, three homes, all of them are teleworking and stuff like that. Um, and then yesterday morning at 4 a.m., I got a text, just a reminder, daycare's closed this week. And I didn't realize that somehow. I don't know if I missed a memo or something. So the reason I'm at my in-laws is we got in the car and drove here because it's the first week of school. <laughs> and I have two things to do this week, right? Yeah. Finish my Canvas page for my Thursday class. Got my Monday classes taken care of, but still have to do my Thursday class. So, I mean, I think it's just sort of rolling with the punches and trying to have a good sense of humor about it. And giving yourself that grace that you want to give your students to, right? Yeah. And um, I've also developed an obsessive sewing hobby. So, like, I've decided I'm not going to work because I don't have the brain. Like, I literally don't have the brain to work after dinner. So I've just been sewing masks obsessively, and that's been my Netflix time, um, listening to audiobooks and sewing masks. So I'm trying to, my point is, trying to find that balance between, like, getting done what I need to get done to support my students, keep my research going, hang out with my son, but also, like, doing what I need for my own mental health, because we're in a pandemic, right? Yeah. Yep. You're the sewing thing. It's like you have you kind of, like, that unspent creativity, but you don't have the intellectual bandwidth to do your work, right? And so, yeah, the sewing machine's been out of the dining room table. <laughs> I, do, I have two children, and so, and I'm because of my, my spouse works in a healthcare adjacent field. And so, again, feeling very fortunate, can't complain. Like, my spouse has, is, into, is able to continue to, you know, get income and support us and all of that. But And then I was the primary care provider um, for most of the summer, too. And so, yeah. Yeah, when the kids were like, oh, we want to do an art project. Why not? Let's go nuts. Let's do it, right? Let's go for a trail walk, right? Let's go do some water play in the backyard. Why not? Like, this may never happen again. So, yeah. I mean, on one hand, you have to be appreciative of it, but then you always have that little kind of nagging in the back of your head of, I should really get back on You know, I really need to get back to email or, or whatever. So. But I think you bring up a good point about kind of the space and the ability to get away. Because uh, uh, my partner works at the same institution that I do, or that I do, and she's on the administrative side. But we're both part of some of the same conversations about scenario planning. That if this happens, then we go online, or then we do it in this way. And she was part of the summer PD course too. She was a lot of the 
sort of instructional design component, how is the helping with faculty figure out how to turn that on their computer that component. Uh, but that meant that she was working from home and I was working from home. And we were working on the same things, but she would see it from the administrative side and I would see it from the faculty side. So there wasn't any separation from a professional or domestic uh, disputes. It was all sort of the same conversation. And you can't ever get away from that at that point. <laughs> I can't imagine having to navigate like the faculty administrative conflict <laughs> in my house. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, kudos to you. <laughs> I like a lot of aggressive house cleaning or yard tending, gardening, or anything like that. But. Uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of yard, you know, social distance within the lot on which we live. Uh, so, you know, we each have our, our sort of space. Uh, she's, uh, she's posted up in the dining room, the dining room table, and I have the office that, that you can see behind me. Uh, but yeah having to figure out where that space is but you know that sort of intellectual space that I think oftentimes as faculty we take for granted you know as we're doing our work it is a very solitary pursuit from our colleagues especially during the summer where we go away and research whatever we're personally interested in that didn't happen this summer you know so the conversation was more institutional focused than it was my research which made it more challenging yeah, I uh, I got IRB approval on like a big project right at the beginning of the pandemic that has turned into a nightmare, and like nothing has been done on it. Uh, the data is way more than I could handle, <laughs> and trying to find like a third author for it, it just hasn't hasn't worked out. And so I still like I feel these like pangs of resentment sometimes about all of this. Like not only did I lose my summer, like I lost. I lost a month where my kids would have been still in school and I would have been home alone to like read. Like there's this hardcore eight hours a day reading, like just vanished, <laughs> gone. Um, so we can watch Teen Titans Go all the time <laughs> and, and listen to my daughters uh, fight with each other <laughs> all the time. My two year old is very precocious. <laughs> now and uh, very much wants to hit and throw stuff and uh, even was it last night or this morning that she was like chasing chasing her older sister through the house and my six year old comes running at me and she's like uh, Zoe's, Zoe's gonna throw at me she's throwing stuff at me and then here comes Zoe charging in after her like I'm doing throwing <laughs> I'm doing throwing like no you're not like stop it so I've just been like a referee I feel like <laughs> I don't know. I kind of identify with your two-year-old. <laughs> I really want to hit and throw things. Right I'm now. doing throwing. <laughs> yep. So, forgive me for not knowing the answer to this question, but have you had any conversations on on tenured tracks about uh, kind of like the issue of, of grief, grief as something that people have had to deal with, like the grief of maybe a lost summer, the grief of you know, your research project's not panning out the way you had planned, like just the grief of whatever. Um, but but I think that this is something that is maybe lost in all of these exchanges or maybe is hidden somewhere in the subtext of these exchanges that many of us are having about uh, what it means to, you know, be a scholar or an international researcher, somebody who does, you know, cross-national work, people who go to field sites who are, are no longer able to access them, mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever you're grieving, right? That the, the idea that there is such a thing as kind of professional grief or feelings of loss and that it's okay to go through some of those stages attached uh, with grief to process it. And that's part of the kind of maintenance of our mental health to be the professionals that our students need us to be and to be the presence in the classroom that we want to be for them because they're probably also experiencing some grief too. And I, um, I just think that's a really interesting concept to, to, to consider as uh, instructors, but then also as colleagues. And we're all kind of going through a collective a sense of grief, but to varying degrees for all of this. Yeah. Um, nobody has nobody has put it uh, that well <laughs> before. <laughs> um, and, and certainly that wasn't 
that wasn't like the term I was thinking of putting these together, but like hearing you talk about it, that's definitely what I was thinking putting these together, right? Because when we talk about how has the pandemic changed how we approach work, there's like this sense of we've lost this old this old way of doing things. We know that the academy, even though people at maybe at, at very elite institutions think that everything is going to remain the same, that like it's pretty clear that that it's not going to be the same the same business whenever we get back to normal um, for all kinds of different reasons, right? Um, and so, I mean, I've gone into this year thinking like this could be my last year, you know, uh, doing this and like that sucks. Uh, so yeah, I think grieving, grieving is also like a, a big part of this. Um, like all the loss and like, kind of the callousness too of how some institutions are, are framing the pandemic too right like students are going to get sick uh, you need to be ready for that some of your colleagues might pass, might pass away uh, you need to be ready for that just by the way <laughs> yeah or you have to have someone else available to teach your section or something yeah yep come up with a backup plan write a will yeah <laughs> in case yeah yeah, I mean, there is definitely this collective trauma and collective grief at varying levels this, with everything that's been going on over the last six months, all the loss, um, the shootings of black men, yeah. black women, and others. And and I think that um, we have to acknowledge it as instructors, and then I've been figuring out how to really support my students virtually, right? You know, so I one thing I didn't mention in my introduction um, is that I run a community-based research scholars program at American University, and like my job, most of my job is actually running a living learning community that's focused on community-based research. This semester, we're 100% online, so we're not doing the living learning community. They're in their home bedrooms, and we're not in the community. We're still doing virtual like tutoring with some of our usual nonprofits, and the nonprofits have really figured out how to get it so our students can still be involved. But my students are so disappointed and sad about not having those things that they thought they were going to have as first-year students. And we're trying to figure out how to support them in that transition from high school to college, mm -hmm. even though the end of high school wasn't what they expected. And then now their entrance into college is not what they expected or dreamed of or paid for, right? And so mm -hmm. all the Zoom calls in the world... You know, one student said very poignantly, when I close my laptop, I'm alone again. And when you're a college student, I don't know your types of universities, but, you know, we're residential for first and sophomore years. You're never alone. That's what's so fun about the first year of college. You got your buddy down the hall or your roommate or you hate your roommate, but it's still fun to, like, deal with that interpersonal stuff <laughs> as a 18-year-old. And now they're, like, with mom and mom, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, right? Yeah. Balancing both, oh, my point is balancing both our own collective trauma and grief that we're going through at various levels, and then also being able to be present for our students. And yeah. Having Zoom calls to have conversations with students, um, and being able to switch a little bit my focus on, on their grief. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was talking to one of my classes yesterday about how universities have treated them as customers for so long and now because of the pandemic are trying to treat them like they are community stakeholders and uh, I don't know how many students are really number one even aware that they're being treated as customers but number two uh, aware of like the ramifications of that pivot right and like an administrative philosophy like we're now we're going to hold you responsible for spreading COVID around our campus because you're not following these safety guidelines and and all of this stuff and like yeah I just I think students who are going to college for that experience like have to feel like maybe a pretty profound sense of loss right over what could have been you know especially because we market college as like the most like the best time of your life and you're never going to have more fun than you will at college and I mean some universities like basically explicitly market themselves at that right and so now I'm at this party school where I can't party. What am I supposed to do? Go to class? <laughs> Absolutely not. Don't worry, you Zoom lectures. I'm not going to download that. <laughs> I, I will say, you know, kind of in this 
in this conversation here, I think it's, it's pretty interesting in terms of um, there is a real sense of focusing on, on the present in terms of what we're experiencing right now, how we're dealing uh, with the difference in expectation versus reality, things that weren't anticipated. But obviously, as a historian, uh, one of the things that people have asked me is, how does this compare to X? So since this is hit, I've done interviews with the local paper about you know, what kind of lessons can people take from the Great Depression? How does the search for a COVID vaccine compare to the search for a polio vaccine? I just did one in, uh, last week in terms of the Spanish flu versus COVID, you know, similarities, differences. And what kind of has struck me about all of those is in some ways, uh, you know, sort of the moment now is so uncertain because as we look back, we could say, okay, the, the depression starts in, in 29, it's going to last about 10 uh, or 12 years, then World War II, which we know is going to be a successful conflict ultimately. And there is this sense of end to whatever suffering or disruption there is, but we can't tell our students what's going to happen now. You know, we can't say that you missed the end of your senior year in high school, but this fall semester is going to go back to normal. Or, okay, you're back for remote for fall, but in spring, we're going to go back to normal. So I think it's that uncertainty without having uh, a predictive end that makes it so difficult. Because on one hand, we just said, you can't go to senior prom, mm -hmm. and you can't do state track. And that's the biggest loss that you're going to experience. On some level, we can kind of look at it and say, you should be resilient enough to get past that. But we don't know if that's going to be the biggest loss that they experience. Mm -hmm. We don't know what this next normal is going to be. Yeah. And even, like, I like the World War II part of that. And, like, how you said, like, obviously, like, a successful outcome. <laughs> because we can't we can't even use that as like a metaphor now <laughs> right <laughs> the united states hasn't won a war in a long time and we can't be like well of course like obviously the president's going to trigger world war three and we'll clean house there and that'll jumpstart the economy and, and all of that because uh, that's the last thing that anybody wants to happen right especially i mean well I shouldn't say especially because I know that at least where I where I am at, we have a, a very robust ROTC program, and so I think a lot of the cadets would probably be, I think some of the cadets would be on board. Um, but in general, right, like it's okay. We could always start a war to kind of distract you and give you a morale boost and create some jobs, building bombs again and whatever else. Like, yeah, I hope we find another way out of this. <laughs> Um, back in May and like early June, one of my graduating seniors who's starting the master's program, you know, I, I checked in and I was like, how are we doing? And he's like, I think we've all kind of gotten over the, we're really sad about like, you know, the senior events that were missing, right? Like that last one. He's like, now we're all panicking because we're graduating and looking for jobs in a pandemic. It's like, I, I, that's awesome. Yep. You know, they, they can mourn the loss of graduation, right? And we did videos and virtual graduations, but, like, the really, like, larger impact of it, I think, hit them once they accepted the graduation more. Like, maybe they should go back to being sad about graduation because, uh, you know, the, the long-term impacts here are, are awful for them, kind of economically and financially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, with, like, no sense of... Like, you just kind of got to grin and bear it and uh, contact your, your representatives and push for another bailout. <laughs> right? Rethink your stat your stance on universal basic income. <laughs> Going yeah, to this. <laughs> yeah, our master's enrollments are up, I think, for that reason. Like, people still even applying as of last week. And, um, but economically... That needs more debt, right? Yeah. And so they, they had this idea that they'd be going into the work world, you know, at least full-time. A lot of them are finding, some, some of them are doing part-time shift work, but um, the master's rate uh, needs more debt at a private university. Mm -hmm. I mean, at any university, but I happen to be at a private university. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, at a, I'm also at a private, and the tuition that we charge is outrageous. <laughs> And, and yeah, like I just, I can't, I can't imagine having to make that decision now. Like even, even like knowing what we know about the student loan bubble, right? That it's, 
like it's obviously untenable and uh, almost like fictional at this point, right? Like it doesn't matter. Like money's made up, <laughs> so do whatever. It doesn't matter because like how could things possibly get any worse? This is getting like really depressing. This is turning into like a kind of. A <laughs> dark panel let's talk about some positive things can we find any 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 ways that we have have been able to maybe rethink how we're how we're teaching or how we're approaching our work um in light of what's been going on well in one of the great ironies uh this spring i was teaching a historical research and writing class and i had set up a oral history um, module basically that was going to have my students interview people uh, because in 2019, in March of 2019, uh, the community where my university is located actually became separated from the rest of the world due to a flood. Uh, that it flooded and made impassable every road in and out of our community. Uh, so we had students that were stranded on campus. Uh, we had alumni that were volunteering plane rides to essentially transport students over the floodwaters. Uh, we're located about 40 minutes west of Omaha and about 50 minutes north of Lincoln. So you think about major cities in Nebraska. So that had been the biggest disruption, obviously, in, in Fremont in quite some time. So my thought going into the spring semester was we'll interview people who went through this disruption and use it as a sort of marker for oral history archives. And then, of course, by the time we get to this module in February, we're on the verge of everything else happening. So uh, by March, the flood looked as though nothing had actually happened. You know, this, in retrospect, seemed like this wasn't that big of disruption. It wasn't a problem. So we got to talk a little bit about context and how your perspective really changes your understanding of a situation. Uh, so it introduced some real-life uh, sort of lessons that I think would have been more difficult to convey otherwise. Okay. Cool. I want to know more about the flood. Thing. Yeah, that's probably another discussion for another day. <laughs> I have a lot of questions about that. Well, I, I will say that I was actually trapped uh, in town. I I live just across the river, uh, so I was trapped in town for about two and a half days, and had to have somebody break in the front door to bring my dogs some water. So, oh no, that was the most dramatic thing that happened to me. <laughs> It's just like cumulative traumas of loss, you know? I mean, over time, you know, will have long-term impacts for your community. Um, yeah. Even if it is, even if it doesn't seem so bad now, it sort of like all accumulates, right? Yeah. We were, we were real fortunate because it hit the Friday before spring break. So a lot of students had already left town. Um, you know, they had gone back to their homes, or they had gone where they were going on, on spring break trips. So it was just a smaller number. Uh, but yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of, I think you're right, cumulative, you know, road projects, people have lost uh, homes, uh, in many cases didn't have flood insurance, so uh, it was a major, major issue. Um, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I have something positive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Go ahead, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll be aside there. Uh, so, I've been on a couple of different um, teaching panels, and of course, then, uh, you know, a witness to the things that graduate students who are now teaching or, you know, very new instructors thinking about how to approach teaching students. And I have to say that for, uh, as much as the academy has a well-earned reputation of being a difficult and um, unkind place, I have been a part of more conversations in the past three to four months about how can we be more empathetic, how can we be more compassionate, how can we uh, teach the whole student more effectively, how can we meet people where they are at when everyone is in a different place. And I don't think that those are conversations that we would typically have. And I, um, while I'm a graduate student, I had a career in an administrative capacity at um, a large public university. And I've been a part of these conversations for a long time. And this is the first time I can think of in 10 years where you have um, different groups of people and different cross-sections of people really thinking critically about what it means to be a good instructor and what it means to meet the needs of our students beyond the, the intellectual. And I think that's really important, and I hope that's something that's here to stay. Yeah, 
kinder academy. And I don't mean kind in the, why can't we all just get along way, but I mean they truly in, in a recognizing that um, students deal with a lot outside of the classroom and to recognize that and to work with them in meaningful ways where they're still able to get the education that they're seeking and that they should be provided with, but then with an understanding that that's not the only thing they're there for. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see some of these conversations play out online because, I mean, at least in my, where I am, I've seen, I think as many conversations about, like, echoing a lot of what you just said about how we need to have more empathy and we need to rethink how we're, how we're teaching and, you know, the shift online really exposed a lot of, of past bad practices. Um, and so now this is an opportunity that we're never going to get again, probably, hopefully, um, kind of revolutionize our work and then there's another branch of the academy that is being really intransigent and kind of doubling down and saying no if you're you have to come to my classes they are going to be synchronously online your cameras have to be turned on um and you know when you when you take a test we're gonna force you to be on camera um and like stuff like that um really making education still just as punitive of an experience as it was before the pandemic happened and I just I just don't understand like that that kind of thinking I mean the university in many ways is a microcosm of what's happening in society at large right and so through the I'm going to sound very much like a sociologist here but that's okay going to be true <laughs> that just as I mean like Kamala Harris was saying that, you know, the virus doesn't discriminate, it's the effects of it, right, that reveal pre-existing discriminatory practices. And it kind of by that logic, um, we're seeing an increase in stratification, deeper inequalities in society, and we will continue to see that. Mm -hmm. But I think that that will play itself out at the university level as well, right? So the students who, by whatever chance, some of it just could be purely accidental. We'll get into classes that have an instructor who's really strict about things like that um, because they can't, the timing isn't right to get in the class with an instructor who's more mm -hmm. lenient about whether you need to have your video on, right? And they have very different classroom experiences. And some of it is just like their moment in time and it's chance. Mm -hmm. But then some of it too is... There are students who, you know, have the cultural capital to know the system a little bit better. And so then they're going to be in a more advantageous position, will just create further inequalities. Like, we're seeing this play out in a number of different venues. And so, personally, I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah. And then it'll be up to like, whoever wins out. And yeah. I, I mean, right? And wherever the, the trend goes. And personally, I think it's going to be more towards the former and less towards the, uh, you know, like the. Yeah. The proctoring online nonsense, which I'm, <laughs> I, I don't want to start on. It makes me very angry. Oh, and, 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 yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I deeply, I deeply dislike it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it does. It does. I mean, I hate to be like really hyperbolic, but it does in some ways feel like a battle for the soul of the academy is happening right now, and and like people who, who are teaching, who, who I think. Uh, really dislike undergraduates are are now in a in a position where, for whatever reason, are just being very loud about their their dislike of people in early adulthood, and like they're untrustworthy. All they do is party and et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, but but you guys created the like. I didn't ask the university to build a rock wall, like or to install a rock wall. You got the rock wall. <laughs> You're the reason why people are coming to the university to party. Like, it's, this is your fault, <laughs> not my fault. And, and why are you why are you so angry about this? I think you make an interesting point, uh, both of you, in terms of you know, who's making the decisions. And in some cases, you know, the, the policy of uh, cameras on or you know, synchronous versus asynchronous, and how to design uh, courses are made at an administrative, not an individual faculty level. Uh, at least some of the conversations at my institution. And I think when that happens, then we're going to see the students start to sort themselves out uh, based on their relationship with the institution. Because mm -hmm. if we take away that ability to party, we take away those uh, littering residence halls, and we take out some of the uh, extracurricular that is often the, the differentiation yep. when students make decisions, 
it might be those sympathetic or the academic policies that are drawing students to certain places. Uh, particularly, you know, with online uh, instruction being a geographic leveler, that there's not a, okay, I'm going to go to the school that's, that's near me because it's near me, I can go anywhere. So that is the next sort of five to ten years, I think, at least in my view, of how we start to see uh, admissions decisions, marketing, student choice, sorting some of these things out. Yeah. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is that I, I really feel bad for the, the cohort of first-year students who just aren't going to have opportunities to develop that cultural and social capital um, and figuring out, like, from, like, you know, students and cohorts above them, like, hey, if you take, this, like, so-and-so's class, it's going to be really hard or stay away from this professor because they're, they're terrible or whatever. Um, so those students are walking into buzzsaws, I think, um, blindly, and then because of that, those professors whose teaching, whose bad teaching, may not really be a topic of conversation because it's because kind of like an open secret, right? Like you have to be able to put up with whatever kind of toxic behavior because students can't look out for each other and and kind of guide each other away from those classes. Now that bad teaching is amplified because more people are kind of taking it because of this pure happenstance, right? Somebody whose enrollment may have been I don't know. I teach at a, at a small school, so a small class for us would be like 10 or 15, may now like double or triple in size, which is going to really have a cascading effect. And that's going to draw, I mean, course evaluations we know are, are useless, but it's going to draw those evaluations down. Um, that prefer, that person's going to feel backed into a corner. Um, it gives them more opportunities to say dumb things publicly <laughs> or, or go on the offensive on Twitter, <clears throat> like we've seen recently. Uh, and that hurts all of us, right? Because I don't think people realize that like one one professor having kind of a a meltdown online represents the entire academy and like gives people who want to be critical of academia more ammunition to be like, hey, this random dude at I'll just pick a school out of thin air, uh, University of Utah <laughs> is really making a fool of himself online. This just shows that all professors are are terrible people. I think that what makes us unique kind of as a profession though and that we're all pretty like vocal loud mouths, whatever. <laughs> that's how we're here. Um, you know, <laughs> is that a lot of us are, and so many of us are willing to stand up and say that is so toxic, right? that is so bad, this is what we should not do. And I think that's a major difference that we see with it, with other professions, right, with the one bad apple kind of argument. Um, so at least I think I've been heartened to see, like, like you've said, everybody just being so kind, um, but also to call out really bad practices when we see it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what kind of like ways specific to all of you have you have you tried to adapt to teaching online? So, have you come up with like new assignments or just new pedagogical stuff um, that you're you're proud of or that you're working on that you think could be really fun? I mean, a lot of guest speakers. Like, I'm, I see a really bright side of. Now everyone's like up to speed on how to use Zoom. You know, I used to bring in some virtual guest speakers, but most of my guest speakers would be local. DC, luckily it's DC. But the bright side has been I've been able to have panels with friends in LA um, and friends in Texas and friends in DC that my students can sort of meet and chat with mm -hmm. um, from wherever they are. And then this semester, I'm, I'm uh, I guess <laughs> I'm using a lot of guest speakers for a couple of reasons. One, I think students really value and appreciate them. Two, I can have folks in different time zones participate. Um, and three, I don't know how if I'll have daycare this fall. And so I want to know that there are some classes that I have to do less prep for. Um, and so that's just a realistic thing of sort of me thinking about like how to manage my workload um, with the uncertainty of whether daycare slash schools will be open this fall. Um, I am actually having my students in one of my I teach a class called Navigating Childhood about how inequality and public policy affect child experience childhood. 
And I didn't want to, I was like, I could focus this whole class on COVID, but I was like, nobody wants that, right? Like, we do not want, we have one week that will talk about COVID's differential impacts on different communities, right? Um, uh, but then their final assignment is going to be a, a podcast on navigating childhood through yes. COVID. And so they can interview someone that has some, either kid or teacher or parent, you know, something about children and childhood and COVID. Uh-huh. And so... Um, I've never done that before, but luckily my TA like, loves to make podcasts, so we'll help be able to work with them in a sort of student mentor way. Yeah. Um, and then the other bright side, I think, really has been the breakout rooms on Zoom. Students love them, and I just like pop by periodically. Sometimes I just leave them alone because they're craving social connection, and I'll give them something to talk about, but I also kind of just want them to socialize, and they really value that because they don't get that tutor chatter time. Yep. while waiting for me to set up or during break or, you know, during other small group, small group things that I make them do that they just don't stay on topic. Don't stay on topic. I actually want you to talk about other things. Yeah. So you make those social connections because I work predominantly in first years. Um, and they're, they want to meet new friends. They want to meet other students. And so I'm trying to create like a lot of icebreakers and that kind of thing to get them to socialize and also it'll mean they'll come to class more yep. like if I were going online I would it would be hard for me sometimes to log in if I were a student and so I hope that if I build those social connections this week and next week and ongoing that they'll like want to come to class and so it'll be better for everyone and the guest speakers hopefully we'll get them to class and then they'll listen to me blabber on right they can hear some of these perspectives I'm also having my students interview the guest speakers to practice their interview skills so they can make the podcast at the end of the semester um, so that also, um, uh, I don't know if there will be some uh, cutting edge questions like, what made you want to be a social worker? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, like, the borders of our institutions and like the silos of our disciplines are kind of evaporating because of this, right? Like everybody is essentially like, I mean, we're drawing paychecks from our own schools, right? But in a lot of ways, like everybody's kind of their own brand now. And like, I think it's forcing people to be like, okay, like I could teach anywhere in the country. Um, I mean, just like Dustin was saying that students now have like way more options. Like so do we, you know, uh, and guest speakers and all the public scholarship and everything. Like, I think I think people's vitas are going to explode. I hope with this stuff. Hopefully, a lot of like on tenure tracks mentions and crimcon mentions on there <laughs> as well. Um, so, a colleague and I noticed that with assembling materials for teaching intro to sociology, there's some really great like definition type video, right? Crash course is great. Like they have Khan Academy stuff to give to your students, but. There are very few like nice ten-ish minute videos that go into a subject area that can be dropped into an online course, right? Synchronous or asynchronous, it kind of gives students some sense of contextually what some of these things are, right? And so he and I are putting together a like seven to twelve minute series of short videos that we're asking all of our friends basically to do it. So that people can take them and use them in their online courses to have you know another person present the research. We can't always depend on people to assign our articles, right? But it's another way for advanced graduate students and kind of early career scholars mm-hmm. and to start kind of I don't know, I guess showing off their brand and thing, mm-hmm. right? And but then to also fill a gap, right? Mm-hmm. And to meet a need because it's very difficult to get on Zoom and talk for an hour about mm-hmm. whatever, I don't know, like social stratification. But if you have somebody who studies stratification in a really specific way, they can talk about it for you know, seven to ten minutes, provide some interesting mm-hmm. graphics, and then here's an illustrative example, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I'm working on one on sentencing disparities between white collar and, like, street crime, right? And kind of, like, the racialized differences of that. And, you know, just something that's really easy to drop into... Uh, a class where you're talking about like deviance, right, or crime and law and like those types of disparities. And so we're looking at, um, at ways in which we can both exercise our own interests, but then meet some sort of need more broadly. And I think that sort of creativity 
is exciting to see because a lot of people are doing things like that. And so. Yeah. Well, I found too. Uh, so, in addition to teaching history, I coordinate honors program, and uh, we have our, our biggest incoming class. Uh, this is my third year as the coordinator. When I took over, uh, we were having classes of about five or six. So this semester, we have twenty coming in. So I'm very happy about that. But that means, what are we going to do with all of these incoming first-year students? And one of the things that I found is a lot of the conferences or the experiences that we would have done typically that we'd have to travel for have gone online, which means that they're much more affordable for us to do on our budget to get the students to... Uh-oh. Dustin, you froze. Can you still wait on Sarah to drop an F-bomb or something? <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm recording all my video lectures, I'm like, oh, students are going to be like watching these at home. <laughs> Who's the woman that I, I pay to teach you? Yep. Oh, in, in my intro lectures, I recorded, I, I, like, I started, like, acting like their parents are in the room. So, like, I'll say, like, what's up, mom and dad? Um, I did that, like, whenever I teach Marks an intro, I have this whole bit, right, where I pretend like I'm afraid to write his name on the board. And, like, if you say his name enough times, it's going to have, like, a Beetlejuice effect, even though they don't get that reference. And then I'll I'll write it really quick in big letters, and then throw the marker across the room like it's hot, like it burned my hand. And so I couldn't I couldn't replicate that online. So I just did this big like like over the top like hemming and hawing about it. And like I'm sorry if your parents are listening. I know this is why they're afraid to send you to college. <laughs> it's gonna be okay. Um, and then like I tell them the bad news is that they're all Marxists because they all are affected by the economy and I'm sorry that I'm sorry mom and dad I but you're Marxists too you sent your kid to college for a better job so well I mean I think that is an important thing to bring up though Sarah around like we're being recorded in our classrooms now yeah. in a way that we've never been before and you know, I try to create this classroom environment where folks feel comfortable chatting, but, like, who feels comfortable chatting? I mean, we are right now, but, like, if you're a college student, being yeah. recorded so that folks can look at the lecture later to study or whatever, mm-hmm. like, for good reason, like, you're not going to say some things that you would say in the classroom. And yeah. so how do we, like, I've been using a lot of poll everywhere so that I get their anonymous thoughts mm-hmm. um, because I can't, figure out, I just feel like it's weird that we're being recorded now. Mm-hmm. So we're recommending to students that anything that the instructor says should be recorded if they're choosing to record their lectures, but then to pause the recording for and make that explicit and um, just make it very right. clear to the students in attendance that this is recorded. Um, if you have a question that you want me to pause the recording for, like put it in the chat, I'll pause the recording and we can talk about it. And because you, you, it's possible to do that. That's a really good so, idea. That's a good idea, yeah. Um, can your co-host do that? Because <laughs> I think I would get, like, I would be so into it that I would forget to pause the Oh, yeah. If you um, are... So, like, make a TA a co-host Yeah, or yeah. Like, okay. if they're, they're kind of on the same administrative level as you, then they should be able to do it, too. So. Yeah. yeah, I think I, I do want to have those kind of students with my students, um, maybe at our next class, about how they want to structure discussions. Like, obviously, breakout rooms aren't recorded, but then students don't get the benefit of what their peers have to say. So, discussion boards, of course, work everywhere, but... I'm just trying to figure out pedagogically, like, how to not replicate, because you're not going to replicate, and you shouldn't try, but, like, really try to create those environments in your classroom that you seem to create, especially if you're topics. I think that's a lot of what online teaching is, right? Like, you don't have, I mean, it's a, a lot about creating space, right? That you don't really know what's going to happen there, but this is based on my very limited personal expertise and all of the things I've read and listened to, and whatever, that so it's passive knowledge, but that it's really about just kind of creating space for these things to happen, and then things will unfold as they unfold, just like they would in the classroom to a certain extent, but that you have to do a lot more work on the front end to enable those types of exchanges to take place. Yeah. There are some benefits, I think, too, with, with certain online courses. So um, our college kind of in response to uh, racial and social people this summer and injustices um, decided to 
create a year-long re-credit course um, that students can enroll into where 21 professors are teaching different modules um, about racism and racial justice, each through our own different lens, so through like a philosophical or kind of hard science course. So uh, I'm leading this this course because I have a course release that I couldn't use because of COVID. Um, and so a lot of the students, because it is a predominantly white uh, college, are very nervous about, you know, all the things that, that white people tend to be nervous about when discussing race. This, I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm afraid somebody's going to call me a racist. These actually, like, online discussion boards are a really great opportunity for them to be able to, to think about this and participate, but have time to digest what they're communicating. And if they do say, quote-unquote, something wrong, they can go back and edit it. You know, I think they're a little bit nervous that, like, someone might screenshot things. But, um, you know, I told them this is a space where you can learn and make mistakes and kind of somebody can say gently, like, maybe that's not what you meant to say. And then they can have this discussion. There's a lot less, I think, confrontational than in a classroom and in small group discussions. So I think this is actually... Strangely, a very good springboard for many of them who've never had discussions about race before. Yeah, I'm using Discord for all the all the um, like class discussion stuff. Um, I mean, the biggest challenge is just being like having to send out multiple emails to try to get, especially my intro students, to like it's mandatory get on there. You know, I'm assigning discussion groups. Um, this is where you're going to talk about all that stuff because we're not doing anything live synchronously online because you've got way more important things to do <laughs> than, than, than listen to me, right? Um, I'm, I somehow ended up with a lot of seniors in that in that intro classes here too. And seniors in Social 101, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> it could be really great or it could be very... Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, it's either... I mean, like engineering students who have put it off um, because they, they don't want to deal with it, or students who have, have maybe just changed majors um, but still show up as seniors um, in our system. But yeah, like you never know. Well, they always wanted to take a social class, but they never showed with their schedule, and now because it's online, they can do it. Yeah. Or they, or they think it's easy. You could have a lot of men, like pre-med students or students who have med school aspirations because a social course is required for the MCAT now. And yeah. so yeah. I've had a lot of seniors who said, well, this was, you know, I could never get it in. I need to take it before, yeah. you know, I go to med school. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've, we've had that. And I've had, I've had a couple of students go to med school. We have a big pharmacy school. Mm-hmm. Um. But the pharmacy student schedules are, are very like they have no they have no wiggle room at all. The pharmacy school is so so controlling over like every minute of those students' times. Um, so, all right, Dustin is back. <laughs> I hope maybe part of the online struggle <laughs> is that um, um, that's okay. Um, we can we can actually just wrap it up. Um, this is this is part of the online struggle, right? Um, tough connections. Uh, everybody thinks you're working from home, so that means you have way more time because nobody has to drive anymore. So you have all that extra time in your day now, and so yeah. So as we deal with uh, technological problems and people having to to go. Um, We'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you, everybody, for taking time out of your day to come and hang out. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thank you. Take care. Take care, everybody. Bye. 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 Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured 
and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.